This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome into another episode of the Swamp 247 podcast. My name's Jacob Rudner alongside Swamp 247 staff writer Graham Hall, and this is our first Game review episode of the Swamp 247 podcast. Florida faced off against number seven Utah on Saturday, September 3rd in Gainesville. Uh, entered that game the underdog, but came out victorious. 29-26 win in an upset for the Gators. A heck of a start for the tenure of head coach Billy Napier. Uh, and Graham, we are going to break it down. We're going to go through the good, bad, and ugly uh, of this game. Uh, we also have the uh, the benefit of having talked to now Coach Napier uh, a couple times, uh, once after the game, and then again on Monday. You and I are recording this uh, on Monday afternoon, September 5th. Uh, and so we have a lot of insight from players and coaches about what they thought and have some thoughts of our own. I'll toss it to you first, though. Uh, give me some general takeaways. What what were some of the things that stood out to you, I guess, immediately, uh, either during the game or in the in the aftermath of it? Thoroughly impressive, Jacob. I think that's a way that you can describe it right away because Florida managed to beat a top 10 team in a head coach's debut, and they didn't play anywhere close to a perfect game. They had a fumble on the opening drive. Anthony Richardson should have been picked off. Florida's defense didn't get, I think, as many stops as they would have liked, although they did come up with some critical stops. We'll obviously talk about that in a little bit, but it was not something that Billy Napier would have called anywhere close to a a complete game. And he was very adamant about that. He came out today and said, we were lucky to win that game. When we went back and looked at the film, a lot of sloppiness stood out to us. And I think that those are things that, yeah, while maybe they would initially sound concerning to outsiders and maybe even a head coach themselves, the result makes it so that, oh, there's reason to have kind of these lofty expectations because if you're managing to beat a team of Utah's caliber with a coach who's been there for two decades and the, the starters that they returned, we recounted it throughout the week last week. There were so many reasons why Florida had reasons, excuses, whatever you want to call it, to lose this game and to come out not even playing what they thought was a perfect game or anywhere close to it and still managing to get the result they want. I think that says a lot about maybe their prognosis for the season, but where this team is at. Uh, I think a lot of people maybe thought that they would be a little bit farther behind after nine months of Billy Napier than they are right now. And that is certainly, I think, a positive takeaway that you can have from this game. Yeah, absolutely. I, I will actually take the, uh, I'll take the opportunity right at the outset of this show to, to just eat a little bit of crow. I know that there are going to be plenty of people who tune in uh, to the Swamp 247 podcast wondering if I will acknowledge the fact that I picked Utah to win the game. And not only will I do it, but I'll do it right off the bat. I uh, incorrectly picked the Utes to win 35-27. Uh, obviously, the final score was 29-26 in favor of the Gators. Uh, and I think that I... Uh, let me say this. If I were to do it again, I would pick it the same way. Uh, and I think I, the reasons for that were because of, you know, like we talked about, you, you have a team uh, that's in its first year of a head coach that's still trying to figure a couple things out. That, that still has some things to figure out now that we have the game in the rearview mirror. And, and that was something that Billy Napier said himself uh, on Monday. And, and Utah was not viewed as a team that needed to do that, which is what fueled my decision to uh, pick the Utes in the first place. That being said, I think that this was, and this is my, my general takeaway, I think it was a generally very impressive showing in most capacities for Florida. There were mistakes. Uh, Billy Napier talked about that. Graham, you just me mentioned uh, it was not a perfect game for Florida. But I think that for a team that had a lot of questions, that is thin at certain positions in terms of its depth, that has an inexperienced quarterback at, you know, leading its offense, that is in its first game of its first year under new coaching on both <clears throat> sides of the ball where it had to learn new schemes and adapt to, to certain changes culturally as well. 
I think that this was as good a game, really, as you could ask for. And I can appreciate uh, Billy Napier's humility uh, and, and you know, coming out and saying, there are a lot of things that we could have worked on. And I think you and I would both agree that that's true uh, in certain capacities. But as far as, you know, from just the demeanor to, you know, certain pieces of execution, or at least down to individual performance within, you know, the offense and defense, and, and while there might have been group uh, execution errors. I think there were a lot of individual pieces that were really promising. Uh, and, and for those reasons from start until the result, really, even including the result, uh, it was really a perfect day for Florida. So uh, certainly a, a cool thing to, to see. I will also say, and a lot of people have been asking me what I thought of it from an environment standpoint, it was my first game in the swamp uh, after covering Arizona State for the last three years. Spectacular. Uh, I was, I mean, you can attest to this more than I can. I was truly uh, just in awe of uh, the turnout, of the the crowd's you know participation, uh, and and just the environment that the Florida fans were able to create, and also credit to the Utah, to the Utah fans. I think all of us were impressed uh, with how many of them showed up. So uh, I think you know, to summarize, I think that this was a really impressive performance in general for Florida specifically, uh, but also you know that the, the fan base, Florida's fan base, uh, did a great job as well. Uh, let's, let's kind of drill down on some of those things though. Uh, and, and we can even start with the fans, Graham, 90, over 90,000 people. It was the 10th largest attendance, uh, in Florida history at Ben Hill Griffin stadium. Uh, I also believe this was Florida's largest, uh, attendance in a home opener in program history period. Billy Napier has been effusive in his praise, uh, of Florida's fan base and has outright said that they played a role, uh, in the team's ability to win. How much do you think that played a, a factor on this Utah team? What what were your kind of takeaways as somebody who uh, has been to the swamp before? Where where did this one compare for you? Yeah, it was up there, certainly. I'm not going to say it was the loudest game I've ever been to. I think that Auburn and LSU and some of those other moments, some of those Tennessee comebacks over the past few years, at least in my opinion, rank a little bit higher than that. But absolutely, in terms of an opener, that was the loudest game I've ever been to because we haven't really seen anything like it since I've been covering the team and, and nor have we seen it anything like it for the last 30 years. Really. I think to get that environment, obviously it encompassed the excitement around Billy Napier, having a new head coach, uh, an exciting quarterback and Anthony Richardson. And then you're playing a top 10 opponent. This isn't you coming out and playing the likes of, you know, middle Tennessee, Eastern state or something like that. You're playing a top 10 team that is coming off of appearing in the Rose Bowl in a double-digit win season. I mean, two programs seemingly going in opposite directions here, but a head coach in Billy Napier comes in and leads Florida from that 500, under 500 finish from last year to a victory over number 12 Utah. And I think that he was right to come out today and after the game on Saturday and praise the crowd for their uh, impact in that, you know, you saw Anthony Richardson come out and say that his ears were ringing. It was hard for, hard for them to talk on the sidelines when Florida's crowd was attempting to distract the Utah offense. They were into the game consistently. The weather was not a factor really from an enthusiasm standpoint. People were still in the stands early, which I initially thought would maybe be something to watch here because, you know, when you have 90,000 plus trying to get in and rain is slowing that down and leading to maybe even some hesitance, towards wanting to get into that stadium, maybe that could have led to a slow arriving crowd. And with Florida trying to get a bunch of energy in the from the very beginning, jump out to a lead, that was maybe something that would have hindered their ability to do that. Fortunately, that was not the case. I thought the crowd was extremely good. And I'm going to echo what you just said. Utah traveled really, really well. We had talked during the buildup to the game that they were going to get 4,500 tickets. UF initially gave them 3,000 to sell through their the school. They gave them 1,500 more in the weeks leading up to it. They sold out of all of those. And that's even before factoring in the secondary market, which we believed that Utah fans were going to attempt to travel well, knowing that this was a destination battle, that they were going to see a stadium that, as you just alluded to, Jacob, is on a lot of people's bucket lists. It's an unforgettable experience. And even though you've covered a lot of games, seen a lot of football before, you can go to Gainesville and walk on to, uh, walk inside Ben Hill Griffin Stadium and have an experience like none other. And I think that a lot of people, Utah fans, and, and then a lot of media like yourself experienced that this weekend. It was an incredible atmosphere. 
it's one of the best that I've ever seen. Is it the best? No. But against this Utah team, it was enough to impact the game. And I think as you saw there during a lot of sequences, especially the goal line stand to come out of halftime, I thought the crowd played a huge part. And those were some of the loudest moments that I've ever heard. In terms of overall experience, I think that Florida can get a little bit better in the the Napier era. But certainly it was an impactful game from the fan atmosphere. Absolutely. I I actually think that, you know, there was a degree to which the fans were, you know, had a negative impact very briefly at the beginning on Florida's team, actually. Uh, I think Anthony Richardson felt a little uh, jitter. I think that he, you know, the just, I'll say this as somebody who experienced it for the first time. It's one thing to hear about the swamp and it's another to be, you know, really immersed in it and and to see it, to hear it. Um, And it's jarring. I mean, I, I wasn't, playing and it was jarring for me i was sitting up in the press box and I, you know you could feel it uh there's just an energy to it that i think is it takes you aback and and i think that there were a couple florida players who needed a second to really uh feel that and to figure out how to adjust to it i would argue that uh montrell johnson a guy who has been praised for his ball security when he was at louisiana who's a you know somebody that billy napier trusts to be a guy who can fight through contact that's kind of his brand from when he was at Louisiana. Gives up a fumble on his first carry. Uh, Anthony Richardson, we saw a couple early decisions. Even Billy Napier referenced it on Monday. Uh, we saw Anthony Richardson early look a little bit, you know, just not out of sorts, but but as if he were trying to figure stuff out. It was an, it was almost like a nervous energy uh, to him. And I think that you could probably point across the roster and find a couple more guys who had kind of their welcome to the swamp moment. Uh, and again, it just says something to me about how truly uh impactful a but b the magnitude the the environment that these florida fans create it it really is it's 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 jarring uh and i think once you get used to it it's in the best way uh but it was fascinating to me to see which florida players needed a moment as well to adjust to their own crowd uh and i think that that's something that could really benefit florida when it goes on the road uh because like you said there aren't a lot of places that can even come close to recreating uh, this kind of an atmosphere. And so I find it to be interesting uh, to see how Florida uses what it has at home to its advantage, uh, you know, both in the swamp and on the road. Uh, Let's talk about kind of the, some of those mistakes. Let's talk about some of the things that Billy Napier was not uh, as happy with Uh, two fumbles in the game. One of them Florida lost Montreal Johnson's in the the first quarter. Uh, Trevor Etienne fumbled and was lucky to recover it. Uh, And that was another moment that could have swung the game. Uh, Seven total penalties. Uh, Florida was a little bit shaky in coverage. Let's talk about the football aspect of this game. Uh, Because seemingly, and and you can share your perception of of what we heard, Billy Napier didn't seem thrilled uh, with it. To me, he seemed uh, pleased to win the game. But as he said, in in his line of work, it's important for him to separate result uh, versus what he sees on film. And, and it sounded like the general takeaway from the actual film study was not terribly or overwhelmingly positive. Yeah, I, I do get that, that sense as well. And you can really start from the opening kickoff. You know, Florida gets a holding call on their opening kickoff, something that Billy Napier has come out since he arrived on campus and said was going to be a focal point when it came to his improvement, so much so that he labeled the special teams unit the game changer unit, saying that they can impact the team in multiple ways and Florida fans certainly don't need to be reminded of how critical special teams can be. I I talked to them on earlier podcasts about the 2020 shoe throw and how undisciplined penalties set up a game winning special teams play by the opposition, a 57 yard field goal. They've also seen blocked kicks that end games, you name it. They didn't need to be reminded of it, but Billy Napier was adamant that it was something that was going to be fixed up from the moment he got on campus and to see, you know, not just one holding penalty on a kickoff, but another one, I I think that that is something that is going to bother him more than I think many people expected, even though Florida was able to overcome them and they weren't extremely detrimental to the overall result and, and its pursuit of that. The fumble by Johnson, who, you know, Napier, I think personally may feel as if, you know, that is someone he handpicked in a sense because he came over with him from Indiana. He picked him multiple times to be on his roster. And even you could make a case that it was at the expense of some other backs who didn't even get an opportunity either in this game or they left the roster prior to the season. 
So he had doubled down in a sense with Montreal Johnson. So I had to think that him coming out and seeing Johnson fumble on his very first rush was probably more than upsetting, more upsetting than I think a lot of people realize, because those are several mistakes that Napier feels a lot of personal investment in. I think a lot of what you can be impressed with the lack of serious issues between the on the offensive line, not not huge miscommunication penalties, not really having any illegal formation penalties, stuff like that, getting lined up correctly, being able to run the hurry up the way that Florida did and to get everyone set and not really have massive issues there in terms of the timing. I thought that that was extremely impressive, but was there a lot that Florida has to get cleaned up? Absolutely. From this game. And again, you can have an optimistic perspective about that. You beat a top 10 team and you can still improve. We said this in the beginning, you have the head coach and players coming out saying it was sloppy. That is, I think, extremely encouraging about the approach from week to week, knowing that we're going to focus on cleaning stuff up and not just be complacent based on the result. You know, you have a chance for three turnovers, the two fumbles, Johnson's, which does end up being a turnover, but then ETN's, which is in the fourth quarter with Florida trying to close the gap. If that fumble is not recovered by Florida, we may be talking about an entirely different optics and a result. So then you also mentioned Anthony Richardson's, you know, that third and 10 throw that should have been picked off um, if, if the DB had had a chance to break on it a second earlier, get underneath it. Again, possibility of changing a game. And we're not sitting here talking about Richardson as this guy who was named as the SEC Offensive Player of the Week in his home debut as a starting quarterback. Instead, we're talking about how turnovers squandered a good chance for Florida. So focusing on what Florida can improve, I think, is obviously to their benefit because you can make a reasonable case that this game could have gone entirely in the other direction. Absolutely. I, I mean, I also think that I, there are two positives to this, you know, general negative. Billy Napier uh, was very quick to point out one of them, and that is that Florida a was, and this is, this is where he said that there is a merger between uh, being objective and truthful in trying to, you know, understand the process to the end result. So the film study and the reaction to that by itself, and then merging that with, with the result of the game, because, you know, Florida still won despite what he called a sloppy performance. And to me, you know, something has to cause that something has to be uh, the reason to go from sloppy to victory over a top 10 team. And in this game, uh, Billy Napier said, and I would agree that the cause had a lot to do with Florida's mentality, uh, what it was able to do, uh, in its head uh, after the start of the game. We're talking about overcoming mistakes. Montreal Johnson talked about how, you know, I fumble and the first person who talks to me is Naquan Wright. Tommy, don't worry about it. We've got four quarters to play. Move on. And then he's got defensive players coming up to him and telling him about how, don't worry about it. We're going to get the ball back for you. Don't even sweat it. Move on. And then Florida's coach is going back to Montreal Johnson uh, giving him more carries than any other running back on the team, uh, it, you know, it says a lot about just keeping that mental strength and not allowing individual mistakes to cause, you know, a snowball effect where other pieces of your game crumble. Uh, Florida did an amazing job of that. I would also say that, and I, you know, this is Napier saying, and I'm agreeing, uh, the, the sense of togetherness, I think, is important. Uh, there's a, a bond, clearly, between these players uh, a lot of whom have actually said that the the togetherness that they feel now is far better than it was in their final year under Dan Mullen. And the other thing is, is what that togetherness creates is a sense of being able to hold each other accountable and understanding when a teammate approaches you with advice or critique that it isn't a negative thing. It's not personal. They're trying to help you. Uh, and that is really to Florida's benefit. Uh, and I think we saw that against Utah uh, Graham, you mentioned Anthony Richardson uh, being, uh, you know, potentially an interception away from from having a different conversation. But Utah did not catch it, uh, and we are here now talking about the SEC Offensive Player of the Week. Uh, Anthony Richardson became the first Florida quarterback since Tim Tebow in 2008, the last guy to wear 15, uh, to throw for over 150 yards. He threw for 168 uh, and to record three rushing touchdowns uh this was in my opinion a spectacular performance uh in just his second start of his career uh what what can you say just about what you saw uh and maybe some takeaways from from what 
Anthony Richardson was able to put together. Yeah, first thing I'll say is if you've been following our coverage throughout preseason camp, and especially even before that, throughout the spring, I think that you got the sense that Jacob and myself were very high on Richardson, even though we had talked on here that there was a lot that he needed to work on. And the stuff that they were working on with him behind the scenes was stuff that he still needed to improve upon. But if you had read what we've written and, and what we've said over the past month, we had talked about the dynamic play ability that comes with not just his massive arm, but what he can do with his legs. And most of that was not seen in, in fall camp, but it was also something that you really have a difficult time preparing for. And what I mean by that, I, I think can kind of be quantified by a sequence that happened to that game and that 45 yard run by Anthony Richardson. That was not a designed quarterback run. It was, you know, the first read wasn't there saw the entire left side of the field open, took off and ran because he was he saw no one in front of him. Then makes someone miss right in front of the goal line and gets into the end zone. I mean, a guy who was extremely highly regarded back there. So I think that part of what Billy Napier had not seen and part of what Florida's offensive coaches had only had glimpses of was what this guy can do in an in-game setting when he has to make something happen, when the play comes apart, when he no longer can trust the teaching throughout the week and throughout the previous month, what is he going to do when the pressure comes? And I think that many people who had seen Richardson, seen how he performed, whether it was dating back to when he was in high school or just the glimpses from last season, they got the sense that this guy had dynamic play capability outside of the designed call. And when you're a head coach, I think it kind of, that stuff is a little bit difficult to talk about, right? When you're talking about how good you're, quarterback or your running back even is at making up for a play call that gets figured out by the opposition. That's never something that I think coaches really want to account for, let alone prepare for. But you have a guy in Richardson who this coaching staff is getting a better sense of what he can do. And part of that is that they can kind of, I think, breathe a little bit easier if the play that they dial in isn't necessarily what is going to lead to a successful sequence right then and there. They still have a chance for Richardson to go out there and make something happen. And I think as you saw on Saturday night, the highs are much more frequent than a lot of those lows. The interception that we just mentioned on the possible interception, excuse me, on third and 10 there, those moments are few and far between in comparison to his dynamic play capability. You saw it on the two point conversion. You saw it on that 45 yard touchdown run. This guy makes things happen when pressure comes, when you think that he has no way to escape. And again, like I said, that's just very tough to prepare for. Part of why people have hyped up Richardson is because they've quantified it by saying if he can get all of the this, 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 this right, what a quarterback does, he has a ceiling unlike nearly anyone else because he can do so many other things that most quarterbacks can't. So it's about nailing everything that he can get to a point where you can focus on what he does to elevate that ceiling because there's no issue with anything else in his game. Yeah, I, I think what impressed you mentioned it. I think what impressed me most uh, about Anthony Richardson's performance against Utah was his ability to make the unannounced play. Uh, for somebody to be able to be in a situation where the offensive play, as you called it, as it was designed, uh, for it to just collapse, or really for it not to collapse. I mean, it, it could just go marginally wrong, uh, or maybe you don't like what you see. Uh, and then to be able to take that and turn it into something either neutral or positive is is difficult. Uh, there are not a lot of players in the country who can do as good a job at that, what I just described, in my opinion, as what we saw from Anthony Richardson in just one week of his third season or of his sophomore season, technically junior season. COVID eligibility uh, continues to be a confusion for me, but... Uh, I, I this was just such an impressive performance in that regard. We saw it on the 45-yard touchdown, which you mentioned, uh, his ability to just escape uh, as, as defenders are closing in on him and just be explosive when he gets into the open field. Or when we see the two-point conversion, uh, a critical two-point conversion, where he gets the ball, uh, is immediately under pressure in the backfield, pump fakes, spin throw, uh, spin move, and then rolls, continues to roll, uh, to his right to find Jaquavi and Frazier's wide open in the back of the end zone because Utah had thought that the play was over 
Uh, at least it seemed that way in its secondary. And not only that, but there were Florida players who thought the play was over. Uh, it was that deceptive and and just special. Montrell Johnson said he thought Anthony, Anthony Richardson had already been sacked. Uh, and so it's just, it's a rare ability, in my opinion, what Anthony Richardson is able to do uh, while under pressure and, and kind of on the fly. His ability to uh, improvise is, is truly impressive. Uh, we didn't see a ton of statistical production through the air. He threw 24 passes and completed 17 of them, uh, but that amounted to just 168 yards. And and I believe, and this could be me reading into it incorrectly, but I believe Billy Napier hinted at on Monday during his press conference that the receiver play or the pass catcher play in terms of you know running the routes and getting open uh, down the field to give Richardson options was not ideal. I think that uh, if I read if I read it correctly, Billy Napier was saying that perhaps Anthony Richardson was running as much as he did uh, or the stats looked the way that they did because it's it matters. Uh, the guys around the quarterback do a lot in, in shaping his uh, perceived performance uh, was exactly what how he phrased it. What, what did you think of, of the receiving rooms productions? I know Ricky Pierce saw somebody you wrote about as having a really good game uh, over on swamp247.com. Give me, give me the big picture though. What, what did you think of the group in general? Uh, and then of course, you know, some standout, some standout performances. Yeah, I agree with your consensus in general. And I do think that Ricky Pearsall kind of separated himself in being able to do what you just mentioned, be able to get out in the open field and create space where Richardson can deliver that ball on time and in a place where only his receiver can get it. We saw his ability, his body control, his ability to yeah, use his size, I think, to maybe not be able to beat someone over the top, but it's, I think, a very impressive use of his size in the open field where you have a quarterback who hasn't had a lot of time with Ricky Pearsall, already understands, I think, how to use, uh, how to, you know, take advantage of what he does best and, and use that that uh, connection to the best, uh, Florida's best. Um, I, I think that it still remains to be seen how good the wide receiver un unit can be. I mean, we saw a lot of those guys nursing some non-contact injuries uh, aside from Pearsall, from Justin Shorter to Jamarcus Weston. And, you know, Xavier Henderson even missed some camp dealing with an illness. So I think that when you look at some of these guys, they would like to get more time to continue establishing that deep threat capability in this offense, because right now I don't really think it's there as you saw by that two point conversion and, and some of these other plays, maybe Florida's best chance in the passing game is when that they can have Richardson roll out, throw on the run and take advantage of catching that secondary a little bit off guard, thinking that the play has already come apart there. I think that that was a really impressive aspect. I didn't think it was Justin Shorter's best game, nor did I think it was the best indicator of what the tight ends can do in the pass game. I mean, you didn't really see a tight end make a reception there. It was a very narrow receiving core, especially if you followed the Dan Mullen era there, where often eight, nine receivers would get involved in the passing game. This is a situation where what, only four guys really were targeted at a high rate by Richardson and a few other people got some targets, of course. But this was an offense that I think really zeroed in on those four guys. And that, that makes a lot of sense there. I, I think that you don't necessarily want to put everything on film right now about uh, when it comes to what your tight ends can do in the passing game. But I didn't think, again, it was a fair reflection, nevertheless, about how much they can be involved when it comes to the receiving aspect of the game. I also think we'll see more Trent Whittemore moving forward there. His absence is, I think, a little bit jarring to some people. They would like to, I think, find a way to get him involved in that offense a little bit more. But overall, I, I, I do think that it, it lends credence to what we've been saying for a long time. This is going to be a run-heavy offense. And I think the best thing that they can get out of Richardson is living to see another play. We talked about during our, our season predictions, whether we thought that Richardson would complete what 70% or more of his passes this season, he was 17 for 24. I mean, that is right there, right short of 75%. That is extremely impressive in my mind. And if they can do that, regardless, if he can do that, regardless of the yardage, I think that Florida will take that knowing what he brings uh, on the ground. Yeah, and I, I will uh, I will comment on the the run game that you just mentioned before we move on to the defensive side of the ball. Truly impressive uh, for Florida. The, the four backs has been the conversation 
dating back really to the beginning of fall camp. Uh, we only saw three of them. I think that was probably one of the bigger surprises uh, of the game. Lorenzo Lingard did not get a single uh, rush attempt on the evening. Uh, but I think that that, and I, I posted this over on the message board at swamp247.com, which I will take the opportunity to plug. Uh, you know, if you really want the uh, the inside information ahead of time, that is the place to get it. Uh, you can subscribe over again at swamp247.com. Uh, and I just posted over there recently that it, it's not a, 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 it doesn't speak necessarily to Lorenzo Lingard having a poor fall camp or you know, not doing the right things or not saying the right things. That is not the case. We haven't heard that at all. I think the reality is really just that Florida has three guys at running back who it views as more talented than Lorenzo Lingard. And we saw that in its first game of the season against Utah. Uh, Montrell Johnson, a newcomer, leads the team in touches. Uh, Trevor Etienne has an absolutely explosive performance, has limited amount of carries, but absolutely does damage on every single one of them. I believe it was seven carries. Uh, he had around 55, 57 yards. Uh, Naquan Wright has 10 attempts uh, and is in the 40 range. Montreal Johnson, obviously, also, I should add, scores a touchdown. Uh, this is a unit that is talented. Uh, I should add that, that Utah historically has kind of made its, uh, made its money on its run defense. It's done a really good job of bottling teams up. Uh, it's very gap sound. Uh, it knows how to plug up holes. It takes away rushing lanes. Its linebackers are very disciplined, especially uh, when defending the ground game. And Florida did a marvelous job against them. I believe uh, in one of the stories I wrote after the game, I put a statistic in there. Florida has only rushed for over 275 yards against a Power 5 opponent twice since 2019. Last season, uh, when it ran for 287 against Tennessee, and then on Saturday, when Florida ran for exactly the same 287 yards against Utah. So this was not a performance to scoff at. Uh, I know that there are a lot of Florida fans who believe that Utah is overrated, uh, you know, that this was a Utah team that didn't have the size uh, on its defensive front to be effective against Florida. Uh, and I'd say that I think one of the things that Utah proved during this game is that it is actually a very good team. Uh, its defense is quite disciplined. It did do a good job. And simply... Florida's offensive line and its ability to run the football is just really good. I think that that is something that we can somewhat confidently take away from this game. It's that Utah played well. Florida played better in that capacity specifically. Billy Napier, who, as we now know, is not shy to uh, you know, knock his team or to say it's bad when it's bad. He's, he's going to say it how it is, was very clear in that he thought his offensive line was one of the things that he thought went really well throughout the game. It was good in pass protection, didn't allow a single sack. Again, it allows over six yards per rush, 287 total rushing yards. Anthony Richardson's involved in that. Three different running backs are involved in that. If Florida can be that kind of a team for the rest of the season and make good rushing defenses look silly with its ability to you know, pave space for a run game, that bodes really well uh, for Florida and its prospects this year. And truthfully, could be something that would allow me to maybe reshape my views uh, of where I think Florida ends its season. I said seven and five before the year started uh, as my record prediction. And I, I, look, I think if Florida can run the ball the way it did uh, against Utah, that could potentially add a win uh, at least to my prediction. But that's something that we can revisit uh, after we see what it looks like through about two or three weeks. Uh, let's talk defense, Graham. Florida limits a good Utah offense to 26 points. Again, this is a this is a Utah offense that scored over 40 against a, a very good Ohio State team uh, just a year ago in the Rose Bowl and then returned a lot of its talent uh, on that end. Specifically, it's two superstar tight ends, uh, Brant Keithy and Dalton Kincaid, both of whom were very good uh, against Florida. And that's the first area I'm going to focus Yes, Florida ended the game on an interception on a ball that was intended for a tight end. Uh, so all is well that ends well. But if we take the Billy Napier approach uh, to game conversation, let's talk about how they got there. Not the prettiest performance uh, from Florida's linebackers and coverage. Florida's tight ends basically had whatever room they wanted. They accounted for 136 of Utah's 216 total receiving yards uh, and caught the only touchdown a receiving player scored for that team, the only touchdown through the air. Uh, what what did you think about the performance at large from Florida's linebackers and secondary members uh, in terms of coverage 
uh, but particularly against those tight ends. And what might that mean as we look forward into the season? Florida has a couple opponents uh, who are also talented in that area. Yeah, from seeing the, the linebackers drop into coverage, I, I think that it, it kind of confirmed what you and I had speculated about, that that was going to be, I think, a point of interest moving forward, just given what I think Florida had from a personnel standpoint. They have a guy in Ventrell Miller who is considered to be a sound tackler, very good at, at getting in and taking down the ball carrier, but a little bit maybe undersized in dropping into coverage and, and defending against the pass. And then you have a guy in Brenton Cox who really kind of, you know, the same way in a sense, but a, a large guy still, but really is not a guy who is fantastic in pass coverage. And, and I think that of those guys, the one who maybe struggled the most before that was the guy who had the game clinching interception. You know, Amari Bernie often found himself, I think, getting picked on um, by, by Brandt. I mean, and, and Dalton, I think that those guys did a really good job at high pointing the football, especially given that they had, I think, a size advantage on Bernie throughout most of the night. and But they were able to get a step ahead of him and make receptions in the open field. I will give him some credit for being able to make the tackle on several of those sequences because there was a chance there where if he didn't, where, where Utah was scoring lengthy touchdowns. But, you know, that is kind of just a, a bright side, in a sense, of a negative situation. I was not surprised to see Florida rotate in freshman Shamar James, knowing what we know about his abilities in pass coverage, his ability to pick up running backs to tight ends, the versatility that he presents in pass coverage. I think you and I have speculated about it. It was going to lead to him getting on the field sooner than I think a lot of people thought. And I thought that was evident against the Ute, the Utes, seeing how much they were looking to pick on Bernie at times. Getting James in there was uh, of importance to this Florida defense there. So obviously I think that there's a way that Florida can improve in that regard. But if they find a similar situation where they face a, a team that's using a lot of a lot of two tight end sets and they need to bring in someone at weak side linebacker to give them, I think, improved coverage, they can rest a little bit easy now knowing that a guy in Shamar James just went up against maybe, if not the most talented two tight end combo that Florida is going to see all year round on their schedule. So I think with that said, that is incredibly, um, you know, the, the promising aspect to look at it, but it was not a desirable performance overall from Florida in terms of coverage. But I got to say this real quick here before we move on. I, I do think I got to, you know, eat a little bit crow like you. Maybe I hadn't been as effusive in my praise of Florida's uh, offensive line and what I think Florida had in the front seven, because I think that those two aspects of the game were the most impressive to me overall. Let me speak real quick to to the former, the offensive line. You know, I think that in years past, Florida fans could reasonably say that they had their success limited on the ground and through the air based on what they had along the offensive line. And seeing this unit, which is the most impressive I've seen in nearly a decade of covering the team, uh, that has allowed them to give their quarterback more time, the running backs more time to, you know, be patient before making their cuts. I think that stuff is completely a huge aspect of what led to Florida's success on Saturday. And it, it can't be undersold that the ability to have not just five impressive linemen. I mean, Austin Barber was the guy in there on Anthony Richardson's 45 yard touchdown run after uh, Michael Tarquin had to head out for a play. Having multiple guys that they feel comfortable starting has allowed them already in the first game to do some things on offense that I think they couldn't have done last year. So it has to be said that that was a huge factor going in um, uh, to, to what led to Saturday's performance. Excuse me. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I also think that, uh, you know, to go back to the, the conversation when you, when you first started talking about, you know, Florida's ability to cover uh, tight ends and its coverage in general, I, I actually thought Florida did a pretty great job uh, with its corners and its safeties with wide receiver coverage, um, like really, really good. Uh, and I think that that was something that we kind of anticipated when we talked about Florida secondary. Uh, I don't think that it was a secret that we thought that it was really between that group and then maybe Florida's starting offensive line uh, and it's running backs for the best on the team. Uh, just really impressive overall talent. Uh, we knew this coming into the year. They back it up game one. Uh, did a great job of covering solid receivers, uh, but but not even 
remotely the most athletic that Florida will face this season. So it will be interesting to see uh, how Florida's secondary continues to fare in that regard moving forward. Uh, but really, the, I think if you're an opposing team, one thing, if you have good tight ends that you're licking your chops at, is Florida did not really do a good job of covering those tight ends, like you said. Uh, Utah had a lot of success on mesh concepts, uh, and they kept tight ends open frequently when they crossed the path of one of Florida's linebackers, often Amari Bernie, uh, and then opened that player up by either extending him towards the sideline or by then turning him up the field. And we saw this on several occasions. Uh, one of Utah's biggest gains of the game was, I believe, a 37-yard reception by Brant Keithy uh, with Amari Bernie in trail. And Amari Bernie didn't turn his head in time. He was already behind the receiver. Keithy made a great catch, but, but it was not the best coverage. And there were other instances uh, on much shorter plays or plays that didn't even end up being completed where Utah had at least one open tight end on the field uh, as a byproduct of just, I don't know if it's weak coverage, uh, if there was a communication error uh, that, that you know, contributed to the fact that Florida didn't have somebody stuck on tight ends more often than not, it felt like, throughout the game. Uh, Billy Napier did briefly mention communication being one of the issues that he thought his team had with the game. Uh, that, was, that was one of the things he highlighted as an area that needs to import, improve. And so I do wonder if that was one of the spaces where that was most problematic. Uh, and we'll have to see. I think that, you know, Georgia, for example, has a very talented tight end room. Uh, what what does a team like that do? Especially, by the way, because there are weeks between now and when Florida faces Georgia uh, in Jacksonville. And we will have to obviously keep an eye on how the team does with regard to uh, covering tight ends with regard to its defensive communication and its execution, which I thought for the most part was okay. I think that defensively uh, in the first half, Florida was was good, if not really good, uh, in, in a lot of defensive scenarios other than that tight end coverage. Uh, they were fine against defending the run. Uh, they did a good job of, of keeping pressure despite not getting a sack on a mobile guy like Cameron Rising whose impact was was generally, I would say, limited relative to some of his better performances uh, in the first half. But in the second half, we see Florida's defense get really tired. Uh, running room is is plentiful. I mean, Tavion Thomas uh, rushed for over 100 yards, and uh, I believe it was 230 yards for the team total for Utah in the game. Uh, we see you know mistakes in coverage start to become more frequent in the second half, and you put the whole thing together, and it was an okay maybe average performance or slightly below that for this Florida defense. Uh, what what are your big, you know, things that you're looking forward to in terms of keeping an eye on them as we move forward here? Florida begins SEC play uh, against Kentucky a week after facing a very good Utah team. Are you, what, what are some of the key things that you're keeping an eye on as we move forward here? Billy Napier, obviously, uh, and you have said that there are areas that need to improve in order for this team to continue to see success. Yeah, you're going to see a different type of uh, pass-oriented offense out of this Kentucky team, a Kentucky team that used to um, make their bread and butter on kind of running it down your throats. You know, they're missing their top running backs. Um, it's not just Rodriguez now. They're missing two, uh, three of their top five rushers, excuse me. That is um, in addition to the quarterback. So that is a huge point, I think, of contention heading into this game. Florida, I don't think, is at risk of being gashed up nearly as much by uh, this Kentucky rushing attack as they were by that four-headed monster that the Utes deployed out there. Tavion Thomas, we said it time and time again, um, he is one of the most impressive backs in all of NCAA Division I football, and the Gators kind of got lucky in not having to face another one of them, and Chris Rodriguez, who led the SEC last year in rushing. So I think that when you look at that situation there, Florida kind of caught a break in this this. Kentucky offense that is a little bit more one-dimensional right now than they would like, you kind of have a situation where the Gators have a chance to really dial in on defending against the pass and making sure that they don't get exposed by what what Kentucky has in the slot. Um, I, I think that absolutely this is a Kentucky team that maybe is a little bit worse off than many people expected them to be coming into the season. They're dealing with a variety of injuries um, as I mentioned, and also some suspensions. Uh, we'll see if Jordan Wright is still out, but Chris Rodriguez, losing him is a big one. 
the huge key, I think, of why a lot of people expected this Kentucky team to be one of the best in the SEC um, and what maybe this game is going to come down to is the play of the quarterbacks. And maybe that's kind of a cop-out in a sense, but when you have a guy like Will Levis and Anthony Richardson back there and then you have a bunch of pieces around them that maybe are in a variety of places, whether in terms of their development or who is available to them, I think that you have a situation where whichever starting quarterback comes out there and makes the fewest amount of mistakes there and trusts their offense is going to come out here and win the game. And if you're a Florida team that just kind of got carved up by the tight ends, you're going to think that it's going to be a point of emphasis throughout the weekend to make certain that no Wildcats uh, receivers there, whether they're wideouts or tight ends, are going to pick you apart after you just faced a quarterback in Cam Rising, who I think had a really good chance of doing just that, knowing that they were going to establish the run first. Kentucky doesn't really even have that benefit that they're going to do that. They struggled to establish the run against the Red Hawks. And they also, this is the last thing I'll say before I turn it back to you, they also struggled with pass protection. You saw Will Levis sacked four times, and that was not an offensive line unit that really, I think, looks up to the standards that many people have come to expect in the SEC. I think that Florida has the advantage there, and when you're talking about a quarterback battle deciding the game, it's hard not to think that Anthony Richardson is in that game with an advantage, knowing that he has backs at his disposal who just put on a show against a top-10 team, and he has a group of five offensive linemen, more than that even, that Florida feels extremely confident in heading into this matchup. Absolutely. Uh, I will leave it with you uh, on the on the thoughts moving forward, and I will end uh, our show with, with my own final thoughts, and that is that I want the takeaway for anybody who listens to this. Uh, this was not a negative uh, podcast. This was not, this was, I don't think, I'm, I'm going to speak for Graham, even though we haven't discussed this, but I certainly for myself. Uh, I think that Florida was really impressive. And Graham, you led the show with that. I, I did as well. And I want to just reiterate it as we close. There are always going to be things that need to be worked on. Uh, I think that one of the things that in our time talking to him, I've appreciated most that Billy Napier has said was his line about how the truth is the truth. Uh, and you gotta you have to look at things objectively where if you watch the game, uh, you know, you watch the film, you review it and you decide, you know, was the process the best in in our in our journey to the result or was the process not great, but we still got the result we wanted. And I think that that is a really profound thing. I think that that is something, if you're a Florida fan, that is super promising, that you have a coach who clearly understands that there is room to both celebrate a win but also to be smart enough to recognize that perhaps Florida was lucky to get that win or that Florida shouldn't have gotten the win at all and that it lucked its way into something. And, and Billy Napier said on Monday it was, it was lucky that we won the game. I think that that is super profound. I think that that's super promising uh, if you're a Florida fan. Uh, I, and again, I do think that while there were mistakes and there were areas that Florida was sloppy, its ability to stay mentally tough, its ability to uh, stick together, to be uh, supportive when a teammate made a mistake, uh, and and to kind of be able to bounce back in the situations where it mattered the most, a goal line stand, like you mentioned, uh, to start the third quarter where you don't give up a touchdown despite your opponent having four plays with the ball an inch away from the end zone. Uh, the game-ending interception by Amari Bernie, where he did a phenomenal job to jump in front of a route uh, and, and pick it off to seal a win. Those are huge moments, and those don't happen without an overall impressive performance, especially against a top-10 team. So again, uh, I think the general takeaway, if you're a Florida fan, has to be that this was a positive, given the fact that it was imperfect. Florida still won and still overcame what I think a lot of people could reasonably call some significant errors. You can't give up 136 yards to opposing tight ends and 230 rushing yards. But Florida did, and Florida won. So uh, I think that there's a lot of reason for positivity if you're a Florida fan after week one, uh, and, and equal reason to you know tune in week two uh, and see what Florida does against a good Kentucky team and to really understand, is it a fluke uh, that Florida won the first game of the season? Was it really luck? Or is this the kind of team that is good enough to make mistakes that it can overcome them? 
And then my biggest question is, what does Florida look like when it has a perfect game? What is what does a good game look like, start to finish? Uh, and I think we we could find out soon. So, uh, any final thoughts, Graham, before we wrap this one up? No, I think that it. You know, we have to give a shout out to the coaching because you can have mistakes, of course. And I think that, like you just said, if you have too many mistakes and coaching can't overcome them, that's often a death sentence. So give a huge shout out to Florida's uh, coaching overhaul. You and I have covered it here at 24 seven sports that Florida has the number 12 most talented roster in the country in terms of the team talent composite. When you factor in coaching to a roster of that caliber, I think that a lot of these things that we just saw make a whole lot of sense. Florida has the athletes, but if they can be coached correctly and they're, tendency to make mistakes can be minimized, I think you can easily make a case for the result that we just saw on Saturday, that Florida is capable of contending with a lot of teams in the country, even some top 10 ones, and that in their home stadium, it's hard to expect that a team with coaching, talent, and an environment like that is going to get run out uh, no matter what happens. So I, I think that that promising takeaway is something that I think this game indicated now does it have any bearing on future success not right now but Florida can take another step on Saturday to establishing that it is a pattern people can come to expect from this team I think that was well said uh, and I will just wrap it from there if uh, you like what we do make sure you hit that subscribe button if you're watching this on YouTube uh, and then obviously you know follow us on the uh, on the other platforms in which you receive this podcast be it Spotify uh, or Apple Podcasts. We are going to be posting uh, multiple times a week throughout the remainder of the season, so stay tuned. Uh, and then as far as written content goes, we have plenty there for you too over on swamp247.com. Uh, we're writing a whole bunch, both you know at the games uh, and then before and after them to get you uh, ready and keep you informed with all things Florida athletics. That's football, uh, basketball, baseball, uh, and more. And then obviously that, that good old message board uh, if you want to jump in there and join a great community of Florida fans, we have that for you too. So check us out uh, over at swamp247.com. We thank you again for listening uh, to this episode of the Swamp 247 podcast. Uh, and for Graham Hall, my name is Jacob Rudner, wishing you a good week, and we'll see you on the next show.